Welcome everyone to another regularly scheduled rerun. I want to bring back an episode for you today that's on a topic that I certainly care a lot about. I think about it a lot, uh, but it's usually generally on the periphery of the conversations we have about technology, uh, but it very much cuts to the core of how we interact with it. You know, generally we talk about advancements in technology or new features we can use with our technology, but we don't often think enough about how our technology impacts us, our minds, our habits, our emotions, and so on. So today's episode is about the dark side of the incentive structures at play in Silicon Valley and other tech hubs that structurally disallow developers from putting the well-being of their customers first because it's more profitable to keep our attention at all costs. However, I am really excited to be able to give an update to this story. Both Apple and Google have announced new features coming to their mobile operating systems specifically designed to help people take back some of the control from their devices. Now, to be clear, this is not a story of the tech giants coming to the rescue. This is a story of ordinary people recognizing a problem and demanding that the big companies change. There's an organization called Time Well Spent. It's featured heavily in today's show, but that group has actually since transformed into the Center for Humane Technology. And the work that this group has been doing and the recommendations that they've been making for years can be seen directly represented in the new feature features that Apple and Google are currently bragging about. So while these updates uh, for sure should only be seen as a small first step in the right direction, it is possible that we are seeing the very beginning of a turning tide, you know, the, the point at which we start to turn away from slot machine psychology and smartphone addiction for profit, uh, and time will tell. But it's up to us to continue, first of all, making the best choices for ourselves that we can, taking advantage of any changes to our devices that can help us make those better choices. But it's also up to us to keep the pressure on and continue demanding that everyone from the big companies all the way down to the independent developers help to push for a new paradigm where technology can truly enhance life rather than enhancing on one hand while completely distracting from it on the other. As for Best of Left members, they got a new bonus episode in their feed today in which Amanda and I go on a bit of a ride through a series of positive and uplifting documentaries for the sake of our mental health. Uh, we've recently watched Mercury 13, Seeing All Red, Ladies First, and Hannah Gatsby's comedy special Nanette. Uh, we talk about all the shows in depth, uh, so you should definitely check it out and, and hear our thoughts. Um, but if you've been feeling the weight of politics lately, as we have, and you need a good dose of female empowerment, then we recommend any of those. Again, Mercury 13, Seeing All Red, Ladies First, and Hannah Gatsby's comedy special. Uh, check them all out. So to hear our discussion about that and to access all of our past and future members episodes and, of course, support the work that goes into this show, sign up as a member at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, enjoy. There is time. Even if we are busy, we have time for what matters. And when we focus on what matters, we can build the lives we want in the time we've got. Welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Time Well Spent, The Zero Hour, The David Pakman Show, a couple of TED Talks, and The Minimalists. 
architects of our digital world. Stop. Be better. Because we can be. And we can see that these systems have been designed with intricacy so that companies can keep our attention indefinitely. I don't want to keep crushing these freaking candies. I don't want these alerts to completely command me. I don't care if that panda bear is dancing. Well, maybe. With a hula hoop. Okay, this is fantastic. I have to share this with my 10 friends and 10,000 strangers. Caption, who wants to throw a panda rager? Great, let me go back about my life. For God's sakes, I'm trying to right swipe my wife. Huh. 30 seconds and just two Facebook likes. Or is that just two for which I've been notified? Let me go back and check inside and see whose likes I tried to hide. They don't show them all, I wonder why. <laughs> this panda's dancing. And another video plays after automatically. This one of a gopher that stage turns dramatically. It's like my attention is kept systematically raptured by algorithms that know exactly what I want. Or not what I want, just what I'll watch. And the people behind this intelligent design genuinely want to better our lives. But their bonuses just so happen to be tied to keeping time on site exceptionally high. And now even my news apps have been gamified, and what am I not gonna click that one simple sex tip guaranteed to blow her mind? Wait, where was I, and why have I forgotten to look for that thing I'm supposed to find? And my god, look at the time. It is shocking. But somehow, yes, Netflix, I am still watching. And I know, I know. I should have more self-control. But just to be clear, you just spent a million dollars telling me this story designed to cut off at the end, leaving me wanting more. See, of course I want to see what you have in store. See my cursor already waiting there on the screen floor as you tease the next hour in all of its glory. And you'll give it to me, unless I actively abort... See, it seems the decision's already made for me. The countdown clock's moving. There it goes. Five, four, three. I need to sleep. But you made me want this more. This is not what I consciously signed up for when I hit play on one episode six hours ago. Architects of our digital world. You have more data, information, and control over our retention, the tools to tweak our emotions so we'll return to your experience, but is that what you should do? Or should you? Build digital tools so advanced they can actually enhance the world outside the device in our hands. Can you add so much value? that it lets us put our phones back in our pants as fast as we possibly can. Not time-sucking, time-giving innovation. That's what it means to be truly technologically advanced. The future is not all screens. It's humanity in professor at Columbia Law School. He is the director of the Pollock Center at the Columbia School of Journalism, contributing writer to The New Yorker. 
well known for, I believe, coming up with the term net neutrality. And his new book is called The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. So first of all, Tim, thanks for coming on the program. Sure, it's great to be here. Uh, I, and by the way, I've read your book. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I and I felt there was a huge need for it because I feel I think as a lot of people feel, sort of with every passing week that there is more of an assault on my attention and my focus, and uh, it's getting tougher and tougher to deal with. And and as you put in the book. Uh, uh, harvesting, I love the use of the word harvesting, human attention and reselling it to advertisers has become a major part of our economy. What gave you the idea to write this book? You know, it's a it's a great question. I think it comes a little bit from that experience that many of us have where you sit down to write an email and uh, suddenly three hours go by and you wonder what just happened. It's like you've been stuck in a casino or something. I, I think that sense of losing... Uh, control over your attention and therefore losing control over your time is one of the things that really motivated me to write this book. And um, I thought it was something a lot of people were were dealing with. And I kind of wanted to ask that question, where, where did it all come from? And it almost seems as if the architecture of uh being online now is increasingly being designed to fragment your attention. And I, you know, I'm one of those people who has attentional problems anyway. Uh, and for example, the new thing now in the last year or so, at least I'm noticing it more is pop-ups when you go to read an article. And if I'm researching something or looking into something and I just start to read it and then a pop-up comes up, it one, it drives me crazy, but two, it's one of a number of things on the internet that seems almost designed to prevent me from using it in a linear fashion and fragmenting me instead. So I might go this way or that way. Am I just being paranoid or is there something to that? No, I think what you've noticed is um, underlyingly a, a business model in action. So you might think, oh, that's just really annoying. But actually what we're looking at is a, a a web which is increasingly driven by a business model which relies on delivering ad content and almost tricking people to, to click on stuff. And th those are the metrics. And so as long as those are the business metrics, um, you can expect environments designed to, to coax you to be fragmented. I mean, that's kind of the point of, of the book. I, I kind of go back to the casino again. I mean, a casino is not designed to make you, to have you like place one bet and leave. Or like in a rational way, think carefully about how much money you're spending. It's designed to make it all come out of your pockets and, and it doesn't really care what, what happens to you. It just is designed to keep you going. And I think the web has become a lot like that. It's like an intentional casino. You get in there, you have this valuable thing, your time, and um, you, know, you end up spending hours of it without really thinking about where it all went. And it's different because you don't even really notice. You just kind of notice you how time went by. It's very fragmenting. Uh, you know, the one goal you had gets lost. Um, so that, that's what I'm, I'm writing about. And I think a lot of things, when you want to understand them, you got to go back to the business model. You know, and I think uh, that's well said. And you're a professor of law as well as journalism. And, uh, you know, it gets to one of the moral issues involved here, which is, uh, you know, I heard somebody say once we're all working on Zuckerberg's farm now. Uh, people think of the Internet as a free resource, but this fragmentation and hijacking of attention 
is taking a lot of everyone's time. And when you take someone's time, that is taking a resource. So there's a transaction being extracted in return for our use of the internet and invisible costs that can be very large. And isn't that something we should really be grappling with? I think people should really start to understand that the old adage is right. There is no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, we just pay in different ways. You know, if you don't pay with money, uh, then you pay with uh, your time. Sometimes you pay with data. You know, you tell things about people or Facebook or other companies, things about you so they can better target you for advertising. Uh, you always end up paying one way or another. And I think that is sort of the point of my book is you really just need to understand that. Um, the cost of free is, is something other uh, than what you think. It, it might be, well, okay, because I read, you know, a thousand articles on BuzzFeed this month, I didn't do that other thing I wanted to do. I wanted to learn an instrument or I wanted to, you know, um, read a novel or do this other thing or spend more time with my kids or whatever it is. That is the cost is we end up spending more of our time and attention on things we don't really intend to. And that's one of the things about my book. I, the reason I raise this is, you know, I kind of believe that a life well uh, led is a life that, where you do what you choose to do. And I'm sort of nervous that many of us are, are in some ways living lives that are not exactly those of our choosing. I, I'm amazed at where I find myself. You know, uh, Tim Wu, author of The Attention Merchants, I think of myself as extremely conscious about this stuff. I write about it. I talk about it. Yet I'm amazed how many times I find myself, you know, on a page that's talking about, I don't know, Cindy Lauper's outfits. I made that up. But, you know, it's just amazing how easily you can get redirected. And that gets me to a point, uh, something in your book that caught my eye. Uh, for some reason, you were talking about one of the early uh, advertising innovators before, you know, technology and modern technology came along. People were doing this with newspapers and so on, as you explore in your book. And I think it was Claude Hopkins or someone you're talking about. Yeah. And I, I found this sentence, which, which attracted me just for the sound of it, except for the fuchsia boutonniere he always wore. He was indifferent to self-adornment. And it struck me as maybe a slight sidetrack, but it, it made me think of Mark Zuckerberg wearing the same T-shirt and hoodie every day. It's almost as if there's a kind of person who's uh, quasi-puritanical about self-expression through clothing or whatever. And Zuckerberg will say, you know, he doesn't want to give any time to thinking about what he's going to wear today. But uh, that's not where he wants his mind to go. So he's very disciplined about his own application of attention, doesn't even want to match a shirt and, and pants. But uh, and yet as an expert at harvesting yours, is there a person? Did you think there was maybe a personality type for this kind of attention merchant as you went through studying the history of this? Uh, yes, most definitely. Um, you know, the book is a story of many of the pioneers of attention harvesting, including Cloud Hopkins, who just described the first uh, real copywriter, sort of the model for Don Draper, for people who ever watched the, the TV show uh, Mad Men. Um, and they have very distinctive personalities, particularly the people in advertising. One link that many people may not realize is a lot of the early advertising people had backgrounds in organized religion. Uh, Hopkins himself had been a, a preacher in, uh, I think, a Baptist church. Um, many of them, in some ways, used the devices of religion uh, to try to, when they were inventing advertising, 
essentially the promise that if you do this, you will get that, <laughs> you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, in religion, it tends to be if you pray uh, and believe in God, ever, everlasting life will come to you. Uh, this was more like if you, um, you know, use mouthwash, you'll get married or toothpaste, you'll have more friends or whatever it is. Just that kind of idea of, of promising one thing for another. And the characters who are in advertising are, and in, in the game of attention merchanting, they're, they're unusual. They, they have, I think, very um, powerful intuitions about what catches other people's attention. They themselves are often um, attention-seeking in their own ways, one way or another, but they just have some weird understanding of how to hold a crowd. And, you know, there's, there's people who are like that. They just know what it is to say that gets people riveted and, uh, or, or they understand, you know, in some ways how, in some ways they understand just how vulnerable we are to the right kind of messages. Maybe I'll say, say that much. And also how to reach us. It's a very interesting point, Tim, uh, you know, whatever uh, your personal theology may or may not be, the fact is religion has been in the business of persuasion for millennia. And so whether it comes to what you were just talking about, the kind of promise, promissory nature of it or, and future orientation of it, or just the great, you know, compelling phrase making, you know, render unto see. I mean, are the Bible, the Quran, all the great uh, works of theology uh, are very good at creating phrases that stick in the mind at least as well as things go better with Coke, right? Yeah, I, that's what I'm trying to suggest is uh, advertising, I think, just borrowed those tricks, essentially. Um you know, uh, give us this day our daily bread, Coke mm -hmm. the real thing, uh, uh, lucky strike, uh, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet, um, you know, thou shalt not have other God beside me. I, I think that the <laughs> idea of powerful slogans that drive a movement uh, is the original idea of propaganda, which was a religious idea and eventually made its way into advertising. So a lot of this book is in some ways about how commerce and government Government plays a role here, too, especially in some of the totalitarian states. Uh, Hitler comes to mind. Use the techniques of religion, both the slogans, the promises, the iconography, you know, the unforgettable logos, um, you know, the image of God or, or the image of, of right. the corporate brand to get access to more and more of the human mind. That is basically the, the big uh, thesis of this book. And I think goes some direction towards explaining the the times we live in. And one and speaking of the human mind, uh, and we're talking with Tim Wu, author of the new book, The Attention Merchants. At one point in the book, you describe Timothy Leary, who had been a uh, psychologist at Harvard and had left uh, over the LSD experiments, um, meeting with Marshall McLuhan, who was, of course, a guru figure of media uh, thinking and philosophy in the 60s, you write that McLuhan was fairly sympathetic to Leary's project and uh, was telling him that the, told him the key to your work is advertising it and even composed a jingle for him then and there. Lysergic acid hits the spot, 40 billion neurons. That's a lot. I, it, I couldn't believe that. Is it, That's a true story, though, I take it. It is a true story. It's recounted, at least in uh, Timothy Leary's uh, memoirs, and I think uh, it's mentioned by McLuhan's people. Now, how exactly the dialogue went? I mean, this 
Leary used a lot of LSD, so <laughs> some of his <laughs> memoirs might not be 100% on, but it sounds uh, realistic. And then Leary took that advice. Um, he did decide that if he wanted to have a social movement, he needed a better slogan. And then, um, you know, it, it came time for the 1969 Chicago, uh, San Francisco B-In, and he came in with a, a dropout, tune-in. Wait, am I going to get it wrong? Turn on, uh, tune-in, dropout. There we are. Which yes, Mad Magazine promptly satirized as turn on tune in drop dead um but look he went from being nobody i remember i was just a little kid but i remember leary went from being nobody with that slogan to being on the cover of mad magazine with alfred e newman the mad magazine logo dressed as timothy leary so that's how big an influence he had there was an outer limits parody of Timothy Leary within a couple months. So obviously someone like Leary took the lessons of advertising very much to heart and was very effective at it, right? Yes, that's true. I'll say one thing that's interesting about Leary is he essentially understood what I'm trying to get at this book very deeply. Uh, he felt that uh, we spent too much time then with television, you know, commercial media, and that he felt that what people needed to do was turn inside, you know, spend more time um, thinking uh, uh, inwardly, maybe spending time with friends, um, listening to music, taking LSD on spiritual discovery, that sort of things. Uh, you know, for him, LSD was a technology, uh, you know, the same way we think of, um, you know, uh, virtual reality or something. I think he thought it differently. Now we're like, oh my goodness, LSD. He thought, well, it's kind of like virtual reality. Uh, it mm -hmm. kind of just takes you to a different kind of consciousness. And I just want to stress that what he had in mind is he said, we need to recapture our attention and seize it for ourselves, not let it be commercialized. Uh, you know, it had some impact, but uh, in the end, uh, I would say that the forces of commerce won in the long term. Yeah, well, that for the time being, I would say, being the perennial optimist. But that leads me, Tim Wu, to our last question. Is there a way, I mean, I consider this stuff pernicious and frightening and disturbing. And I'll be saying that right until I'm, you know, off looking at cat videos later tonight. But um, is there a way to fight back? I think there's two ways that I'll mention. So first, um, I wouldn't overrate your powers of self-control. I think if you want to have more control over your attention, you have to draw some pretty thick lines, like as opposed to going to the internet and think you can ignore cat videos. I mean, those things are well designed to, to reach the deepest parts of your brain and, uh, and activate them. So instead of thinking you should, you're going to, oh, I'm going to be on the internet in a while, but it'll only be 10 minutes or something. I don't, you can't uh, take that position. You have to cut a line and say, um, you know, you're not going to touch the computer for this entire day or something. Um, or if you're trying to write, get writing done, which I often try to do, I have a stripped down version of a computer that I use. You have to be very firm. The other thing I'd say when it comes to content is just think a lot about how you get your entertainment um, and think about paid options, uh, uh -huh. you know, buying books or, or watching um, films without or, or TV that doesn't have ads or, uh, you know, subscribing to stuff you think is good. Now, what's annoying is when you subscribe and it still has ads, but, right. you know, trying to, well, I mean, things like Netflix, um, Doan and Amazon Prime. And so just being very conscious of the business model of what you are engaging in is very important. I, I go back to the casino. Casino does not make money um, with you going down and setting one bet. They want you there for a long time and it's the same 
there's an industry that wants your time and attention, and if you're not pretty hard line about it, they're going to get it. It was a one-arm bandit made a monkey out of him. It was a one-arm bandit stole his pocket full of tin. So he tried, and then he cried. I gotta get my money back tonight. That greedy one-arm bandit swallowed nickels by the score. And life was one big worry, cause he hadn't any more. And so he tried, and then he cried. I gotta get my money back tonight. Fed one more nickel into the slot Then he yanked the handle What have you got? Two pairs! One line, no good No line I gotta hit the jackpot tonight To help us better understand our relationship with modern technology, let's look at this groundbreaking study about bottomless bowls of soup. We all think we're completely in control of how much we eat, but there's this study in which one group of participants is given a regular bowl of soup, and the other is given a bowl with a tube underneath that constantly refills the bowl so it never ends. The group with the bottomless bowl eats two-thirds more than the group with the normal bowl. The researchers concluded that the amount of food in front of us has a big effect on how much we eat. And so a lot of technology feels like these bottomless bowls of soup, right? These never-ending feeds in which we end up spending so much time? So how can we fix this? We can restore choice by asking people how big of a bowl they want. So what if technology were designed differently, and was conscious of how much time we wanted to spend with it? What if I could select the emails that are time well spent for me to work on right now, and after selecting how much time I wanted to spend, say, 30 minutes, it created a focused environment for me to accomplish what I set out to? What if my browser was on my team, and I could mark certain websites so when I went there it would ask in the first visit of my day, how much time do you want to spend on this website today? And then the next time I went... It could highlight and ask for a quick confirmation that I want to spend more than the amount of time I selected originally. So in this example, technology helps us replace an impulse with a conscious choice. If you're like me, you've too often been sitting at an airport or crammed onto a middle seat of a plane at some horrid hour either late at night or early in the morning, and you're thinking to yourself, why didn't I just spend those extra $40 on that other flight? We like to think that we're making conscious choices, But when we're all in a rush, the more we rely on the menus in front of us. Hipmunk is a travel website that recognized this, and they let you sort choices by human values. It's not just price or duration, but they let you sort by agony. They do this because they ask themselves, what is sorting for a price or duration about? It's not just about the raw numbers, it's about the human experience and values behind travel. So it's important to ask ourselves, what are the human values at stake in this choice? Another example where technology can help us live by our values could be when you're looking for directions from point A to point B. Of course we know we could walk, but what if since you've told your phone in your settings that you've been wanting to exercise, it put a choice on life's menu that said, or you could walk and here's the fitness goal you could achieve by doing so. Or maybe in your settings, instead of valuing exercise, you've said you valued productivity, so it offers up a podcast you might like to finish in that time. 28 minutes left in the podcast, 30-minute walk, it's on your team. There could be menus that sort choices by what matters to you. We can upgrade the goal from getting to point A to point B efficiently to getting from point A to point B well. And remember, no one decides what well means to you but you. What if technology was on your team to help you live by your values? You changed the town. You changed the town.
Next question is from Martin. Does technology actually make life easier or does it just make life more hectic? I think that there's a macro answer to this and a micro answer to this. At the macro level, technology makes life easier or it at least removes friction from so many aspects of life. Everything from business inventory management to financial transactions, hotel and airline reservations. I mean, so many of these issues, which in the past required sometimes the writing of letters through snail mail um, or other mechanisms, way, way easier at the individual level, particularly depending on on how one chooses to interact with technology. And particularly if you're suffering from a sort of smartphone addiction type of thing. Yeah, technology can make life more hectic in some ways. But I don't think there's any doubt at the macro level, Pat, that technology is making so many of the things that we do in modern life much easier. It's also important to point out that technology makes us so much smarter because we're able to look up information and at the push of a button be able to find out what the answer is. Are we uh, smarter? So I though? think we are smarter because, you know, we can find out the information so much easier and we can work more on applying it. Yeah, I guess I don't disagree with that. It's more of a question of is that actually making us smarter or is it allowing us more time to focus on other aspects with our brains than just remembering yeah. facts? I don't know. I think it's just easier. You can look up the atomic mass of carbon or something in a split second. You don't yeah. have to go digging through your books to find it out. Right. And, and that's, which, that's time that you could be used to apply the knowledge. Yeah. And we don't have any more of those. You know, in the past, when you were out with friends and people said, you know, I think that in 1973, there was a particular um uh, you know, airline accident and someone else says, really was there? I don't remember that. It basically stopped there. And until you could, you know, maybe get to a library or before smartphones, get home to your internet connection, you genuinely didn't know. And you couldn't continue the conversation. Now you can just look it up and then the conversation continues. That seems like a good thing. Yeah. I think a lot of people long for those times, but as I said, I think we're becoming a much more intelligent society because of the technology that we have. And I think that'll allow us to progress at a much faster rate than we were before. Are you worried, though, about technology addiction? I see so many people who cannot go more than a few minutes without looking at their phones. And there's this sort of self-fulfilling, vicious cycle where if any time your mind is unoccupied, you pull out your phone and you sort of fill the void by scrolling your Facebook feed, you're perpetuating the training of your mind to expect something like that every time your mind is at rest for a second. And I don't think it's good at all. I think we have to remember what Spider-Man's uncle said in this scenario, which is that with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. So uh, yeah, do, do the right thing. Uh, don't use your phone too much. Uh, <laughs> but if you're using it to learn, I think it's a good thing. Was that Spider-Man's uncle who yes. said that? Yeah. With great power comes great responsibility is from Spider-Man. Yeah. Okay. I wish we all look it up. I wish we had some way to figure out whether Only. that's true. Uh, but are you being serious about yes. that? I thought that that's a quote that went back a very long time. Uh, I'll have to look it up. Yeah, maybe you can look it up on your phone. <laughs> I, I, I'm only seeing Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. Okay. Well, I, not that, I don't know much about it, but I okay. thought that that went back. Um, anyway, okay, well, this is an instance where I guess the smartphones are useful.
What does it mean to spend our time well? I spend a lot of my time thinking about how to spend my time. Probably too much. I, I probably obsess over it. My friends think I do, but I feel like I kind of have to, because these days it feels like little bits of my time kind of slip away from me, and when that happens, it feels like parts of my life are slipping away. Specifically, it feels like little bits of my time get it slipped away to various things like this, like technology. I check things. I'll give you an example. If this email shows up, how many of you have gotten an email like this, right? I've been tagged in a photo. When this appears, I can't help but click on it right now, right? Because like, what if some it's a bad photo? So I have to click it right now. But I'm not just going to click see photo. What I'm actually going to do is spend the next 20 minutes. But the worst part is that. I know that this is what's going to happen, and, and even knowing that that's what's going to happen doesn't stop me from doing it again the next time. You know, or I find myself in a situation like this, where I check my email and I pull down to refresh, right? But the thing is that in like 60 seconds later, I'll pull down to refresh again, like. Why am I doing this? Right? This doesn't make any sense. But I'll give you a hint why this is happening. What do you think makes more money in the United States than movies, game parks, and baseball combined? Slot machines. How can slot machines make all this money? When we play with such small amounts of money, we play with coins. How is this possible? Well, the thing is, my phone is a slot machine. Every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what am I going to get. What am I going to get? Every time I check my email, I'm playing the slot machine to say. What am I going to get? Every time I scroll a news feed, I'm playing the slot machine to see what am I going to get next, right? And the thing is that again, knowing exactly how this works, and I'm a designer, I know exactly how the psychology of this works. I know exactly what's going on, but it doesn't leave me with any choice. I still just get sucked into it. So what are we going to do? Because it leaves us with this all-or-nothing relationship with technology, right? You're either on, and you're connected and distracted all the time, or you're off. But then you're wondering, am I missing something important? In other words, you're either distracted, or you have fear of missing out, right? So we need a, we need to restore choice. We want to have a relationship with technology that gives us back choice about how we spend time with it, and we're going to need help from designers because knowing this stuff doesn't help. We're going to need design help. So, what would that look like? So, let's take an example that we all face:、uh, chat, text messaging. So, let's say there's two people. Nancy's on the left, and she's working on a document. 
and John's on the right. And John suddenly remembers, I need to ask Nancy for that document before I forget. Right? So when he sends her that message, it blows away her attention. Right? And that's what we're doing all the time. We're bulldozing each other's attention, left and right. And there's serious cost to this. Because every time we interrupt each other, it takes us about 23 minutes on average to refocus our attention. We actually cycle through two different projects before we come back to the original thing we were doing. This is Gloria Mark's research combined with Microsoft research uh, that, sh- that showed this.、Uh, and her research also shows that it actually trains bad habits. The more interruptions we get externally, it's conditioning and training us to interrupt ourselves. We actually self interrupt about every three and a half minutes. This is crazy. So, how do we fix this? Because Nancy and John are in this all or nothing relationship. Nancy might want to disconnect, but then she'd be worried what if I'm missing something important? So, design can fix this problem. So, let's say you have Nancy again on the left, John on the right, and John remembers, I need to send Nancy that document, except this time, Nancy can mark that she's focused. Let's say she drags a slider and says, I want to be focused for 30 minutes. So, bam, she's focused. Now, when John wants to message her, he can get the thought off of his mind because he has a need, right? He has this thought and he needs to dump it out before he forgets. Except in this time, it holds the messages so that Nancy can still focus, but John can get the thought off of his mind, right? But this only works if one last thing is true, which is that Nancy needs to know that if something is truly important, That John can still interrupt. But instead of having constant accidental or mindless interruptions, we're now only creating conscious interruptions, right? So we're doing two things here. We're creating a new choice for both Nancy and John. But there's a second subtle thing we're doing here too, and that's that we're changing the question that we're answering. Instead of the goal of chat being, Let's design it so that it's easy to send a message, right? That's the goal of chat. It should be really easy to send a message to someone. We change the goal to something deeper and a human value, which is let's create the highest possible quality communication and relationship between two people. So we upgraded the goal. Now, do designers actually care about this? Do we want to have conversations about what these deeper human goals are? Well, I'll tell you one story, which is about a year ago, a little over a year ago,、uh, I got to、uh, help organize a meeting between some of technology's leading designers and Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh is an international spokesperson for mindfulness、uh, and meditation. And it was the most amazing meeting. You have to imagine, picture a room. On one side of the room, you have a bunch of tech geeks, right? On the other side of the room, you have a bunch of You know, long brown robe, shaved heads, Buddhist monks, right? And the questions were about the deepest human values. Like, what does the future of technology look like when you're designing for the deepest questions and the deepest human values? And our conversation centered on listening more deeply to what those values might be. He joked in our conversation that what if instead of a spell check, you had a compassion check, meaning 
might highlight a word that might be accidentally uh, abrasive, perceived as abrasive by someone else. So does this kind of conversation happen in the real world, not just in these design meetings? Well, the answer is yes, and one of my favorites is couchsurfing. If you didn't know, Couchsurfing is a website that matches people who are looking for a place to stay with a free couch from someone who's trying to offer it. So, great service. What would their design goal be? What, if, what are you designing for if you work at Couchsurfing? Well, you would think it's to match guests with hosts, right? That's a pretty good goal. But that would kind of be like our goal with messaging before, where we're just trying to deliver a message. So what's the deeper human goal? Well, they set their goal as the need to create lasting, positive experiences and relationships between people who've never met before. And the most amazing thing about this was in 2007, they introduced a way to measure this, which is incredible. I'll tell you how it works. Every design goal that you have, have to, you have to have a corresponding measurement to know how you're doing, right? A way of measuring success. So what they do is say, let's say you take two people who meet up, uh, and they, they take the number of days those two people spent together, right? And then they estimate how many hours were in those days. How many hours did those two people spend together? And then after they spend those time together, they ask both of them, how positive was your experience? Did you have a good experience with this person that you met, right? And they subtract from those positive hours the amount of time people spent on the website, because that's a cost to people's lives. Why should we value that as success? And what you were left with is something they refer to as net orchestrated conviviality, or really just the net good times created, the net hours that would have never existed had couchsurfing not existed. Can you imagine how inspiring it would be to come to work every day and measure your success in the, the actual net new contribution of hours in people's lives that are positive that would have never existed if you didn't do what you were about to do at work today? Can you imagine a whole world that worked this way? Can you imagine a social network that, let's say you care about cooking, and it measured its success in terms of cooking nights organized and the cooking articles that you were glad you read, and subtracted from that the articles you weren't glad you read or the time you spent scrolling that you didn't like, right? Imagine a professional social network that instead of measuring its success in terms of connections created or messages sent, instead measured its success in terms of the job offers that people got that they were excited to get, right? And subtracted the amount of time people spent on the website. Or imagine dating services like maybe Tinder or something, where instead of measuring the number of swipes left and right people did, which is how they measure success today, and instead measured the deep, romantic, fulfilling connections people created. Whatever that was for them, by the way. But can you imagine a whole world that worked this way, that was helping you spend your time well? Now, to do this, you'd also need a new system, because you're probably thinking today's internet economy, today's economy in general, is measured in time spent. The more users you have, the more usage you have, the more time people spend, that's how we measure success. But we've solved this problem before. 
We solved it with organic when we said we need to value things a different way. We said this is a different kind of food, so we can't compare it just based on price. This is a different category of food. We solved it with LEED certification, where we said this is a different kind of building that stood for different values of environmental sustainability. What if we had something like that for technology? What if we had something whose entire purpose and goal was to help create net new positive contributions to human life? And what if we could value it a different way, so it would actually work? Imagine you gave this different premium shelf space on app stores. Imagine you had web browsers that helped route you to these kinds of designed products, right? Can you imagine how exciting it would be? To live and create that world, we can create this world today. Company leaders, all you have to do is prior. Only you can prioritize a new metric, which is your metric for net positive contribution to human life, and have an honest conversation about that. Maybe you're not doing so well to start with, but let's start that conversation. Designers, you can redefine. Success. You can redefine design. Arguably, you have more power than many people in your in your organization to create the choices that all of us live by. Maybe like in medicine, where we have a Hippocratic oath to recognize the responsibility and and this higher you know value that we have to treat patients. What if designers had something like that in terms of this new kind of design? And users, for all of us, we can demand technology that works this way. Now it may seem hard, but McDonald's didn't have salads until the consumer demand was there. Walmart didn't have organic food until the consumer demand was there. We have to or- demand this new kind of technology, and we can do that. And doing that would amount to shifting from a world that's driven and run entirely on time spent to a world that's driven by. Time well spent. And I was woken by the thought in my head. Time to see the world and get up out of this bed. Because with two feet to walk with and a little time to kill, I grab my guitar so I can go and chill. Up Fox Hill, Cotch I will won't stop till I fall asleep. The clock's ticking, but I don't mind because there's nowhere else I'd rather spare my time, and I've no idea where that day gone went, but I know that it's time well spent, and I've no idea where that day gone went, but I know that it's time well spent. So I say, when people find out I write about time management. They assume two things. One is that I'm always on time, and I'm not. I have four small children, and I would like to blame them for my occasional tardiness, but sometimes it's just not their fault. I was once late to my own speech on time management. <laughs> We all had to just take a moment together and savor that irony. 
The second thing they assume is that I have lots of tips and tricks for saving bits of time here and there. And sometimes I'll hear from magazines that are doing a story along these lines, generally on how to help their readers find an extra hour in the day. And the idea is that we'll shave bits of time off everyday activities, add it up, and we'll have time for the good stuff. And I question the entire premise of this piece. But I'm always interested in hearing what they've come up with before they call me. So some of my favorites, doing errands in a way where you only have to make right-hand turns, Being extremely judicious in microwave usage, so it says three to three and a half minutes on the package. We are totally getting in on the bottom side of that. And my personal favorite, which makes sense on some level, is to DVR your favorite shows so you can fast forward through the commercials. And that way you save about eight minutes every half hour. So in the course of two hours of watching TV, you find 32 minutes to exercise, <laughs> which is true. You know another way to find 32 minutes to exercise? Don't watch two hours of TV a day, right? Anyway, the idea is we'll save bits of time here and there, add it up, we will finally get to everything we want to do. But after studying how successful people spend their time and looking at their schedules hour by hour, I think this idea has it completely backward. We don't build the lives we want by saving time. We build the lives we want, and then time saves itself. Here's what I mean. I recently did a time diary project looking at 1,001 days in the lives of extremely busy women. They had demanding jobs, sometimes their own businesses, kids to care for, maybe parents to care for, community commitments, busy, busy people. I had them keep track of their time for a week so I could add up how much they worked and slept, and I interviewed them about their strategies for my book. One of the women whose time log I studied, she goes out for a Wednesday night for something. She comes home to find that her water heater has broken. And there is now water all over her basement. If you've ever had anything like this happen to you, you know it is a hugely damaging, frightening, sopping mess. So she's dealing with the immediate aftermath that night. Next day, she's got plumbers coming in. Day after that, professional cleaning crew dealing with the ruined carpet. All this is being recorded on her time log. Winds up taking seven hours of her week. Seven hours. That's like finding an extra hour in the day. But I'm sure if you had asked her at the start of the week, could you find seven hours to train for a triathlon? Could you find seven hours to mentor seven worthy people? I'm sure she would have said what most of us would have said, which is, no. Can't you see how busy I am? Yet when she had to find seven hours, because there is water all over her basement, she found seven hours. And what this shows us is that time is highly elastic. We cannot make more time, but time will stretch to accommodate what we choose to put into it. And so the key to time management is treating our priorities as the equivalent of that broken water heater. And to get at this, I like to use some language from one of the busiest people I ever interviewed. By busy, I mean she was running a small business with 12 people on the payroll. She had six children in her spare time. I was getting in touch with her to set up an interview on how she had it all, that phrase. I remember it was a Thursday morning, and she was not available to speak with me, of course, right? But the reason she was unavailable to speak with me is that she was out for a hike, because it was a beautiful spring morning, and she wanted to go for a hike. So, of course, this makes me even more intrigued, and when I finally do catch up with her, she explains it like this. She says, listen, Laura, everything I do, every minute I spend is my choice. And rather than say, I don't have time to do X, Y, or Z, she'd say, 
I don't do X, Y, or Z because it's not a priority. I don't have time often means it's not a priority. If you think about it, that's really more accurate language. I mean, I could tell you I don't have time to dust my blinds, but that's not true. If you offered to pay me $100,000 to go dust my blinds, I would get to it pretty quickly. <laughs> Since that is not going to happen, I can acknowledge this is not a matter of lacking time. It's that I don't want to do it. Using this language reminds us that time is a choice. And granted, there may be horrible consequences for making different choices. I will give you that. But we are smart people, and certainly over the long run, we have the power to fill our lives with the things that deserve to be there. So how do we do that? How do we treat our priorities as the equivalent of that broken water heater? Well, first, we need to figure out what they are. And I want to give you two strategies for thinking about this. The first, on the professional side, I'm sure many people coming up to the end of the year are giving or getting annual performance reviews. You look back over your successes over the year, your opportunities for growth, uh, and this serves its purpose, but I find it's more effective to do this looking forward. So I want you to pretend it's the end of next year. You're giving yourself a performance review, and it has been an absolutely amazing year for you professionally. What three to five things did you do that made it so amazing? So you can write next year's performance review now. And you can do this for your personal life, too. I'm sure many of you, like me, come December, get cards that contain these folded-up sheets of colored paper on which is written what is known as the family holiday letter. <laughs> Bit of a wretched genre of literature, really, going on about how amazing everyone in the household is, or even more scintillating, how busy everyone in the household is. But these letters serve a purpose, which is that they tell your friends and family what you did in your personal life that mattered to you over the course of the year. So this year's kind of done, but I want you to pretend it's the end of next year. And it has been an absolutely amazing year for you and the people you care about. What three to five things did you do that made it so amazing? So you can write next year's family holiday letter now. Don't send it. Please, don't send it. But you can write it. And now between the performance review and the family holiday letter, we have a list of six to ten goals we can work on in the next year. And now we need to break these down into doable steps. So maybe you want to write a family history. Well, first you can read some other family histories, get a sense for the style. And then maybe think about the questions you want to ask your relatives, set up appointments to interview them. Or maybe you want to run a 5K. So you need to find a race and sign up and figure out a training plan and dig those shoes out of the back of the closet. And then, this is key, we treat our priorities as the equivalent of that broken water heater by putting them into our schedules first. And we do this by thinking through our weeks before we are in them. I find a really good time to do this is Friday afternoons. Friday afternoon is what an economist might call a low opportunity cost time. Most of us are not sitting there on Friday afternoon saying, I am excited to make progress toward my personal and professional priorities right now. But we are willing to think about what those should be. So take a little bit of time Friday afternoon, make yourself a three-category priority list. Career, relationships, self. Making a three-category list reminds us that there should be something in all three categories. Career we think about, Relationships, self, 
Not so much. But anyway, just a short list, two to three items in each. Then look out over the whole of the next week and see where you can plan them in. Where you plan them in is up to you. And I know this is going to be more complicated for some people than others. I mean, some people's lives are just harder than others. It is not going to be easy to find time to take that poetry class if you are caring for multiple children on your own. I get that. And I don't want to minimize anyone's struggle. But I do think that the numbers I am about to tell you are empowering. There are 168 hours in a week. 24 times 7 is 168 hours. That is a lot of time. If you are working a full-time job, so 40 hours a week, sleeping 8 hours a night, so 56 hours a week, that leaves 72 hours for other things. That is a lot of time. You say you're working 50 hours a week, maybe a main job and a side hustle. Well, that leaves 62 hours for other things. You say you're working 60 hours. Well, that leaves 52 hours for other things. You say you're working more than 60 hours. Well, are you sure? (laughs) There was once a study comparing people's estimated work weeks with time diaries found that people claiming 75 plus hour work weeks were off by about 25 hours. (laughs) You can guess in which direction, right? Anyway, in 168 hours a week, I think we can find time for what matters to you. If you want to spend more time with your kids, you want to study more for a test you're taking, you want to exercise for three hours and volunteer for two, you can. And that's even if you're working way more than full-time hours. So we have plenty of time, which is great, because guess what? We don't even need that much time to do amazing things. But when most of us have bits of time, what do we do? Pull out the phone, right? Start deleting emails, or otherwise we're puttering around the house or watching TV. But small moments can have great power. You can use your bits of time for bits of joy. Maybe it's choosing to read something wonderful on the bus on the way to work. I know when I had a job that required two bus rides and a subway ride every morning, I used to go to the library on weekends to get stuff to read. Made the whole experience almost, almost enjoyable. Breaks at work can be used for meditating or praying. If family dinner is out because of your crazy work schedule, maybe family breakfast could be a good substitute. It's about looking at the whole of one's time and seeing where the good stuff can go. I truly believe this. There is time. Even if we are busy, we have time for what matters. And when we focus on what matters, we can build the lives we want in the time we've got. If I could make days last forever, if words could make wishes come true, I'd save every day like a treasure and then again I would spend them with you. There never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. I've looked around enough to know that you're the one I want to go through time with. The paradigm that's driving people the most, which is the performance paradigm to succeed, 
No one is as, seems to be as interested in the secular scientific proof that that's good for you. So, you know, so we're on this rush to sort of succeed and work 24-7 and make all this money without any, and it's all on faith. And not only is there no proof that it's good for us, there's actually more scientific evidence that suggests that it isn't. But when it comes to meditation, then we want the proof. So that, to me, is an interesting dynamic. You can imagine, perhaps, that there are two people inside of us. And so one of the people inside of us, you could think of as a bureaucrat. And the, the role of the bureaucrat is to function, is to function well in the, in the world, to make sure we get up on time, that we get to our, you know, catch a plane on time, to make sure, you know, there'll be dinner at the table at night and we have enough money in the bank and all of these requirements that we need in order to be sort of successful at functioning in the world. And then there's another person inside of us that you could think of as like an artist or a free spirit. And that free spirit just wants to live and love and laugh and create and be and enjoy and, you know, and just experience all the richness and possibilities of life. And what the middle way would say is that if we get stuck in either one of those places, we subject ourselves to uh, sort of stress and agitation. You know, at Pixar, I, it was a story company, so I go for a few years at Pixar and I learn, well, it's all about story. That's what I learned. And then I go off and study Buddhist philosophy for 10 years, and I come to the scintillating conclusion that it's all about story. We function in a story. We have a story in, in our minds about what it means, you know, to be a man, what it means to be a woman, a son, a daughter, an employee, you know, we, and we get stuck in them. And that stuckness uh, often produces a lot of stress and agitation. Really the goal of meditation is, that, is to open the door so we can go beyond our stories. What the middle way is about is a philosophy of harmonizing these two things within us. And, you know, I saw in Pixar a metaphor for that because it really is a company that succeeded because it was able to harmonize these two, these two ideas. Where would you like to begin? <laughs> I, I practice meditation for, for two hours every day. That is, yeah, I knew that about you. Yeah, yeah I, I yeah. do Vipassana meditation. I agree with a lot of <laughs> what we've just heard. I d also definitely agree with this idea that humans get caught up in the stories. We have a story about ourselves, we have a story about the country, we have a story about the world. Right. And this story d is not necessarily true. It's often a fiction, right. but it dominates us and controls us in our, in our lives. And it's very important to be able to differentiate fiction from reality. Uh, this is also uh, how would I uh, define one of the main purposes of meditation. Uh, what I, I do in, in Vipassana is what's real? What is reality right. in contrast to the stories that the mind generates and tells about everything? You constantly have like this uh, like you watch television yeah. and something happens and uh, you have this commentator constantly commentates and explains to, oh, this happens and this happens. So we also have it in, inside ourselves. We have this inner commentator which constantly weaves stories and very often completely fictional, but we believe it. Right. And meditation is to a large extent about shutting up this, this commentator and just observe reality as it is without any attempt to create a story out of it. It's very difficult, it's very, very powerful. About doing it in, in work, like in corporations, right. like in, in Pixar, 
I think the big danger there is that the bureaucrat tends to be more powerful in the long run than the poet. I mean, the, I mean I'm, I'm generally in favor of, you know, big corporations starting meditation programs and, and so forth. Right. But I am apprehensive of uh, they are hijacking it, at least in some cases, to for the um, traditional purposes Enhance of productivity. In, in and, the end, yeah, enhancing yeah. productivity and not the much deeper purposes of really understanding reality on its own terms, even if that would mean decreasing productivity. I mean, the big question is right. what happens if you send your staff to this mindfulness session and it decreases <laughs> productivity? What do you do then? Right, right. What if they come back saying, you know, I, I spend way too much of my day answering typing emails. and answering emails? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then, of course, there are productivity gurus who say that, like, by answering fewer emails, you can be even more productive. You know, they're, they're, I, don't <laughs> like, I don't like the way, the, 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 the direction this is going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there is a much deeper truth right. in the practice of meditation right. than increasing productivity. Somewhere along the way, the trajectory is part. I mean, you can, uh, yeah, I'm very much in, in favor. And I think that to some extent, yes, it can, it can coexist. You can increase productivity uh, through meditation. And uh, it will also make people uh, more calm, more happy, more uh, have a better understanding of themselves. Right. But in the long term, it's not the same thing. I think you should be in it for the right reasons. Yeah. And not for the productivity reasons. Let's go analog for a moment. Grab a pen and a piece of paper and write down a handful of meaningful things you've been intending to do. Let's label this list someday. What's on that list? Declutter your home? Read a classic novel? Take a road trip? Get into shape? Join a yoga class? Learn how to meditate? Start a new business? Play an instrument? Contribute to your community? Fall in love. Now, on the back of that same sheet of paper, list every action that has occupied your last 24 hours. Label this list today. What's on that list? Shopping? Busy work? Attending meetings? Checking email? Perusing social media? Sitting in traffic? Working late again, hitting the snooze button, thumbing through useless apps, staring passively at glowing screens. Okay, sure. Many of the items on this second list are necessary or even urgent. But just because something is urgent, that doesn't mean it's necessarily worthwhile. In fact, misguided urgency is often the enemy of progress. For most of us, someday 
is the single most dangerous word we utter. It grants us the illusion of future possibility without having the focus on that which is important today. Just imagine, though, how different would your life be if your lists switched titles? What if you flipped the page and made someday happen today? Or worse, what if you wait? Years from now, you might be sitting around pining for someday to arrive someday. We've just heard clips today, starting with the organization Time Well Spent, which is behind the spoken word film, including the Dancing Panda reference. And then they also did the others that gave examples of how technology can be designed for our human values. The Zero Hour spoke with Tim Wu about his book, The Attention Merchants. The David Pakman Show talked about the macro and micro effects of technology and how we use it. We heard two TED Talks today, one from Tristan Harris from Time Well Spent, and the other from Laura Vanderkam about how to regain control of our free time. And finally, we just heard a video from The Minimalists about what can happen when we relinquish too much control of our time and priorities. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now today, I just want to share with you my strategies for dealing with all of this stuff. Uh, a lot of these are referenced on the Time Well Spent website, so you can just go there, timewellspent.io. I, I recommend you do that anyways. That should be today's activism. Uh, go sign up, agree to support their mission, help spread the word, do all of those things uh, to get the message out about how our technology needs to fundamentally change because it's driving us all up the wall. Uh, so that that's what you should do on the systemic level, uh, but that website also has a list of things that you can do in your own life, applications you can use, strategies uh, that you can employ, and I'm going to go through uh, some of them. I'm going to start with the ones that I do myself, and then I'll tell you a few of the others that they suggest. Uh, so I, I've been using a combination of, of these uh, apps and techniques I'm about to tell you for at least the last year, but you know, year, two years in that range. And some of them have been absolutely life changing. The first one is an email application I use called spark. I'll tell you the magic behind that is that spark uh, somehow knows what email is what it, it categorizes them into personal emails, uh, notifications, newsletters, and then just, you know, things you've already seen. And so that's fine. You know, the, okay, great. So it categorizes things. But the real genius is that you can set it so that only the personal emails, in other words, emails written by humans with you as the individual recipient, only those will even come through as a notification. All the others will be in your inbox, but they don't ping your phone. They don't ding. They don't show up on the screen. They don't do anything. They don't clutter your life until you actively decide to go to your email application and look for them. And then they're there waiting for you. Uh, so that, that was a game changer for me. Uh, that 
maybe did more than anything else to quiet my phone, uh, really calm down my notifications. Uh, and, you know, because you can turn on Do Not Disturb, which is my second suggestion. Uh, if, you know, a, a setting on your phone, just turn on Do Not Disturb. That usually, at least on Apple, it comes with the exception that your favorites, you know, people who you mark as your favorite can still call you and they can still get through in, you know, in case of an emergency, people are going to get a hold of you. But frankly, I have my phone set on do not disturb at all times. That's just what has worked for me. I, I've really decided I don't need my phone to buzz or ding at me essentially ever. So it doesn't. But when I do eventually pick up my phone, all my notifications are sitting there waiting for me. But as I said, that Spark app prevents the vast, vast, vast majority of emails from even coming through as notifications in the first place. So it doesn't ding on me in any way, and then it doesn't even clutter up the visual space of all those notifications. Additionally, last note about notifications is that you should really just go in and change your settings. Make sure that only the apps you really want to notify you are allowed to notify you. You can do that in the settings of your phone and just disallow all of the apps that are pinging you too often and distracting you. Just don't let them do that anymore. Next, I mentioned recently that I installed uh, applications on my computer and my phone to help track my time and, and figure out how much I was actually working. I was stunned to discover that I work about 30 hours a week on my computer and an additional 30 hours a week listening to podcasts on my phone. Uh, and I did that by installing an app called Rescue Time on the computer and an app called Moment on my phone. So if you are just looking to diagnose your own work and habits, I recommend both of those. This next one was a huge game changer for me. Once I caught wind of all of the science coming out about the different spectrums of light and how they affect us, especially at night and especially computer screens, the idea being that computer screens emit a lot of blue light. And if you are exposed to a lot of blue light, which tricks your brain into thinking that it's daytime, but if you're expo exposed to that at night, it can really screw up your circadian rhythm. It can make it harder to fall asleep and, and sort of slow down at the end of the day. And so for my computer, what I got was an app called Flux, which it was it, when I first turned it on and that bright blue screen just gently toned down to this calming amber color. Like I could feel my shoulders relax. It was that kind of a feeling of just, oh, oh yes. Yes, thank you. This is exactly what I needed. Uh, and in addition, your phone should have that option as well. Uh, it's built into Apple phones. If it's not built into Android, I'm sure there's an app that can uh, do that same basic thing on, on iPhone. It's called Night Shift on Android. You know, search the Google Store. I'm sure something's there. Um, I, I was interested to see that the um, the the time well spent people specifically suggest the swipe keyboard. I installed one of these swipe keyboards. I don't know, six months or a year ago, not because I was trying to save time. It was sort of incidental that I, I did that. And I was like, all right, you know, let's try this swipe keyboard. I, you know, I have my doubts. And I almost immediately fell in love with it. And now I am angry at any device that doesn't have it. If, you know, Amanda hands me her phone. She's like, hey, you know, here, I need to look something up and I, my, I don't have mine. Like, let me type something in. 
And I'm like, oh, what, what kind of a, is this phone made for chickens? I'm tap, tap, tapping away. This is ridiculous. Give me my swipe back. And as it turns out, it's a great time saver because you type about 50% faster, which means you can type what you need to type and then put the phone down. That's the whole point. In terms of decluttering your web experience, I am totally in love with a reader view. Most browsers have this feature where you're, you know, you're looking at an article and it's usually cluttered by a bunch of ads and pictures and, you know, autoplay videos on the side or anything like that. And you can activate reader view, different browsers call it different things, but basically it just strips out everything but the text and the basic images in the article and presents it in a nice clean format that makes it easy to read. Additionally, uh, disconnect me is my go-to. It's it's not just an ad blocking, but it's a, a virtual private network, a VPN that prevents ad trackers from attaching themselves to me like barnacles to a hull and following me everywhere I go. So not only did I go through Google and all of those things to tell it to not track me as much as possible, I use DuckDuckGo as my primary search engine, and I have Disconnect Me turned on on both my computer and my phone at all times so that uh, there's a little bit of added privacy in terms of, you know, if you're on a public network, you can be a little bit more private that way with a VPN, and also it helps um, clear out a lot of the ads, so some ads just don't even show up, and then definitely the invisible trackers are not supposed to be able to track me uh, with Disconnect Me On. Uh, and then finally, the the last one that I found really recently is just a little tiny app called Rest Time, and it, it it's super simple. It just basically, it knows when you're working and it knows when you're not. And it, as soon as you start just moving the mouse or typing, it starts counting and it just does a countdown for however long you want, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever. And once you've been working for that set amount of time, it just says, okay, it's what it's rest time. And it takes over your screen. It has like a little countdown timer and you can set it to, you know, two minutes or five minutes or whatever. And it just reminds you, all right, stop. You've been doing a good job, but stand up, stretch, go get a glass of water, whatever. So those are the things that I have been using personally. I'm in love with every single one of those. If you need, go back, listen to me, say all of that again, get a pen and paper and make notes and uh, change your life. And then I'll just mention a couple of others. These are from the time well spent people. I don't personally use any of these things, but I think they're worth noting. There's an app called Freedom. It allows you to temporarily block specific websites or apps on your desktop, tablet, and phone for set periods of time. So if you are prone to distraction, you can forcibly stop yourself from being able to access distracting content. Uh, for Gmail, there's a couple of cool things. There's something called Inbox Win Ready, which means that it only refreshes your inbox when you actually hit the button. So you won't be distracted by constant emails coming in, pinging you. It'll, you know, sort of hold them until you say you're ready for them. And then there's also Send and Archive. And that's when you reply to an email. You, as soon as you hit send, it also archives that thread at the same time so that it just clears it out, sort of helps keep things decluttered. 
And then finally, just a couple of strategies that they have over at Time Well Spent. They suggest that you declutter your home screen. And so instead of keeping a bunch of the apps that would have little notifications or things that you might fall down a deep dark hole into, just keep your tools on the homepage, the things that you would only use as an in and out sort of thing, like maps or camera or calendar or notes, and everything else is still on your phone, it can just be pushed to the next screen and put it in folders or something like that, just so that they're not right in your face every time you turn on your phone. And then finally, charge your phone in a room other than the one you sleep in. Get yourself an old school alarm clock, charge your phone somewhere else, So at the very least, when you wake up in the morning, I know you're going to walk into that other room and get your phone right away, but at least you will have that moment where you're waking up, you're getting out of bed, and you're not attached to your phone already. So that's what's been working for me. Hopefully some of that will work for you, and you've heard some interesting uh, tips and insights, and uh, this episode has made you think. If uh, if this episode has made you consider changing any of your behavior or uh, makes you think that you can take some control and improve your life, consider sharing the episode, and whoever you share it with, I guarantee, will appreciate it as well. And if you have any thoughts of your own you'd like to share about tips and strategies and and things that we can all do to take better control of our own digital lives, please share them. Keep those comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Don't forget to head over to podcastawards.com, where we are in the process of uh, trying to be nominated in the news and politics category. So get that done by the end of July. That's when the nomination period ends. Again, podcastawards.com. And please keep leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing Wonder what we're doing Can't see past